I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast by the Takshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, and welcome to All Things Policy. In a lot of our podcasts, we talk about data. We talk about regulations regarding data. We talk about data privacy, who is collecting your data, and what's done with your data. Today, we're going to be looking at a different aspect of data, um, namely how data is transmitted and how the movements of packets of data can make or break economies. Um, I have with me today Aditya Parikh. Welcome, Aditya. It's a pleasure to be here, Anurudh. So, um, Aditya, you recently had a document out about India's submarine cables. Uh, but before we get into actually discussing the document, let's talk a little bit uh, more generally about flows of data. The world that you and I inhabit um, is, is an extremely complex one. And one thing that really keeps it going is the constant exchange of massive amounts of information uh, from different parts of the world. You're not just talking about uh, financial information, you're talking about personal information. Really, the the ebb and flow of these tides is really uh, what makes the modern world as interconnected as it really is. But what really enables the flow of data? I think that um, just generally when a lot of us think about uh, data being transmitted from one place to another, we think of this cartoony satellite uh, and like data being beamed up and beamed down from it. Uh, but to what extent is, is that image really true? Um, how is the information that underpins uh, the networks of exchange that make our modern world, um, how is this information actually transmitted uh, from one place to another? Well, I'm glad we're starting on that point because uh, honestly, the image that most of our communications are going through satellites uh, isn't exactly correct. In fact, to, to the contrary, uh, about 97% of all global communications are carried by uh, submarine telecom cables. And just about less than 3% of all uh, these communications are carried by satellite systems and other systems as well. So it really is a situation where uh, the general public has a different worldview from what the reality is of uh, uh, data communication in the world today. And what kind of quantities are we talking about in terms of data? And like, how how are submarine cables more broadly uh, laid? Who owns them? Like, are they owned by uh, national governments or uh, are they owned by private corporations? Who pays for them? Uh, who maintains them? I can imagine that to transmit the kind of data quantities that uh, would be required to keep stuff running, you would require cables that have some pretty extraordinary capacities and those kind of things wouldn't be easy to make. So when we talk about to, uh, the ownership of uh, the cables and the infrastructure that uh, supports them. So India is currently connected to the world with 17 active international submarine cables and supporting them are 15 landing stations, which would obviously make landfall in coastal Indian cities, which are Mumbai, Cochin, Trivandrum, Chennai, Tuticorin. And uh, surprisingly, these cables are uh, not owned by the government, uh, even if they are vital national infrastructure, which enables the government to have international communications, domestic communications, just about uh, the whole nine yards. But surprisingly, they're owned 
kept up and tended to by private consortium partners. So the private sector has a bigger say in what happens to these cables. Uh, coming to the specifics, the five major players in India are Tata Communications, who have seven active cables, five landing stations, which they have some part in or own completely. And they also have the uh, highest bandwidth capacity by uh, the landing station, if I recall correctly. And Airtel, which has four active uh, cables and uh, three landing stations. Uh, coming to Reliance Geo, which is probably the biggest sensation in our telecom business uh, right now. They have three active cables, two landing stations, and one more landing station is coming up. And when we talk about the international arena, Global Cloud Exchange is also a big player. So they have uh, three active cables which are connecting us and uh, two landing stations which they have uh, some part in. And uh, since the Andaman Nicobar uh, and Chennai cable has been talked about in the media as vital infrastructure, uh, since it's a domestic cable, uh, it has less of an impact internationally, but still it's important to our uh, national bandwidth, I'd say. So BSNL uh, happens to be the only indirect way in the uh, in which the Indian government uh, somehow controls some submarine cables. So two cables are currently uh, owned by BSNL in part as well as completely. So the Andaman Nicobar and Chennai cable is owned by BSNL completely. But the uh, Bharat Lanka cable system, which connects India and Sri Lanka, uh, is owned uh, in partnership with the state teleco company in Sri Lanka. It's kind of interesting to me how um, there's, there seems to be a reputation of history in a way almost, right? Just as um, economic and financial uh, quote-unquote information used to be traded um, along India's coast in terms of actual physical goods and luxury items. Um, we're again seeing like the same old routes, uh, namely across the Arabian Sea, uh, between India and Lanka, and then from India again uh, to the rest of East Asia, kind of being replicated uh, with these submarine cables. But Aditya, so you mentioned that a lot of these cables are privately owned, right? What I want to understand from you is how uh, private ownership of cables kind of gels with uh, coastal defense. So I'm sure that um, a lot of navies and specifically the Indian Navy uh, must have some very restrictive uh, ideas on what can actually happen in coastal waters. If, for example, there is some kind of uh, damage that happens to a submarine cable, um, then what happens? Like, does the private sector have some kind of conduit to the national security apparatus that allows them to go out there um, and repair these cables? Or is that a privilege that only BSNL has or does even BSNL not have that? Uh, well, actually, uh, when we talk about uh, restoration capability and the laws that govern it, so uh, since submarine cables are not exactly tied to a country's territory, they have their uh, existence in uh, on the seabed. They are also transiting through a country's territorial waters into another country's territorial waters in the EEZ of more than one country's. So, it's really a long chain. Any part of which, if it fails, the whole system fails. Uh, not taking into consideration uh, the redundancies and backup cables. So my point is the uh, international law part of it, which would give you some sort of a guideline, although not all states uh, equally treat international law uh, the same way we do. 
So I would say UNCLOS is something, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea is something that you should look at first uh, whenever you are in doubt about international maritime matters. So UNCLOS has pretty clear uh, directions of uh, how you're supposed to lay these cables, how you're supposed to tend to them, uh, but it doesn't talk about what happens in warfare. So as far as UNCLOS is concerned, it does not restrict the capability of any nation state from targeting another country's uh, submarine cable infrastructure. So uh, putting that aside, restoration capability is something that differs from every consortium, every company to every uh, country, its administration. So for India's case, uh, in our domestic scenario, we have made it uh, clear that any ship that is going to tend to repair or uh, look after in any sort of way uh, one of the cables that are passing through our territorial waters or EEC, they will have to fly the Indian flag. They would have to be registered in India because this way there would be no caveat of international law that would conflict with our own domestic laws. So anything uh, that can be carried out by that ship would be subject to Indian law. So we have in effect to uh, prioritized security over speed of restoration because you know the consortium partners since they are private business players they are looking at efficiency they are looking at flexibility in hiring whatever ships they can get rather than uh, keeping uh, a big hulky asset like a repair ship uh, always on alert uh, which they own so that eats up into their profits and this is something that the Indian government has chosen to prioritize security over, which is commendable, absolutely. Uh, it's just that we uh, we should have a balanced approach that uh, where since our national security is also tied up to these cables uh, being effective all the time, uh, since every minute lost in today's economy where after uh, COVID, uh, most of uh, most of the world's business has shifted online. So I think the government has to understand that every minute lost to uh, our, our connectivity being lost uh, is a huge loss to our uh, economy. Those are some very interesting points, Aitya. And like, what I'd like to kind of like emphasize is that... Um, submarine cables aren't invulnerable, right? So there's a lot of things that could potentially damage them. Um, you get into this in a lot more detail in your document. Uh, but one thing that I'd like you to kind of touch upon while we're kind of exploring this trade-off between um, security and literally <laughs> the entire economy functioning is what could be um, a hostile actor's uh, game plan when it comes to submarine cables, right? We've done a lot of episodes on all things policy about how uh, China is increasingly um, getting more and more of a foothold in the Indian Ocean. China has logistics facilities uh, in the Indian Ocean. It clearly has the capability to actually uh, project power into the Indian Ocean uh, in a way that India doesn't necessarily have uh, for the South China Sea or the East China Sea. Um, so, Potentially, what kind of risks could a hostile actor pose uh, to a submarine cable? I'm just asking this because I want to better understand um, the security aspect um, of the risk to submarine cables. Well, you know, we would have to start with history. When we talk about uh, history itself, China comes quite a bit later. So in warfare, there is a precedent that uh, submarine cables become the first casualties of war 
for example, in World War One, the Royal Navy snipped the uh, transatlantic cable connecting Germany to the uh, rest of the world. There is another example in the Cold War with the Operation uh, Ivy Bells, where USS Halibut uh, went and spied on Soviet uh, telegraph cables in Soviet territorial waters, the Sea of Otsk, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. So uh, there is ample precedent that to states with their military as well as civilian assets would try to uh, uh, conduct espionage as well as try to disconnect the country uh, from all communications if possible uh, during warfare or even peacetime. So uh, the USS Halibut to, uh, slash Ivy, uh, Operation Ivy Bells incident happened in peacetime. So the thing is, we have conclusive evidence that China has tried it a few times to encroach into our uh, EEZ at least and uh, collect hydrographical data. Uh, they could have spied on our cables as well. Uh, there was an incident uh, recently where they dumped a few uh, underwater drones which they later retrieved in the Andaman Sea. And uh, there was an incident where a, a Chinese hydrographic ship, it came and dropped the anchor and the Indian Navy had to chase it away, give it warnings and uh, they eventually left. Uh, after which the chief of naval staff uh, said during a press conference that we're very clear that you have to have 12 days uh, advance notice from us that, yeah, you've been granted permission. Only then you can come in and uh, perform whatever research work you want to do. But this business of uh, conducting second uh, operations under the guise of uh, uh, research just doesn't work. So there is a clear and present danger of Chinese espionage in our territorial waters, in our uh, EEZs, if we let them in. Interesting. So you have a whole bunch of recommendations on like how exactly India can tackle this, Aditya. Um, and I think one of the big things that you are focusing on is actually um, just being more situ situationally aware uh, of what is happening in the Indian Ocean um, for uh, an area of the world that is ostensibly named after our country. It's quite surprising how much China managed to get up to there uh, without our knowledge. Um but uh, there's a whole package, really, of, of measures that you're recommending, right? So mm -hmm. um, it's not just about um, sensors and knowing what is happening on the seafloor, um, but also a whole plethora of other stuff, including uh, more patrolling. Of course, let's not get into too much detail here because uh, we'd like to leave our listeners with something to actually read in the document. Uh, but can you broadly take us through um, how you propose um, that this trade-off between um, maintaining um, the functioning of the economy at all costs uh, versus maintaining security uh, of the submarine cables, even though it can be an expensive and tedious task. Uh, how best do you think this trade-off can be managed? I think the trade-off uh, really is something that uh, comes at a level which, at which I, I don't really think I should be the authority. I can only make recommendations. So uh, personally, I would recommend just four things broadly that you would enhance your maritime domain awareness. That is the biggest uh, takeaway from uh, the research work that I have put in. That uh, maritime domain awareness is very central to our security and uh, national prosperity. 
So, uh, my idea is basically that uh, you raise the restoration capability by providing the private consortium owners with better fiscal incentives because most of the times that is the main thing that they're after. So, uh, you can have them follow the rules, maintain ships which are uh, registered under the Indian flag and uh, give them tax breaks or subsidies somewhere else. The third thing that I would say is that uh, the Indian forces, although they've taken up uh, quite a good amount of uh, surveillance duties post the unfortunate uh, attack of uh, 2611, uh, they've taken up patrolling in coastal areas quite seriously. And it shows that our security has improved. But I would still say that uh, our Industrial infrastructure. See, uh, CISF protects just about every uh, vital part of India's uh, national industrial infrastructure, be it private, semi-private, semi-government or uh, completely a PSU. So I think submarine cables, since they are vital to uh, our national prosperity and the communications of the government, both domestic and international, uh, should also uh, protect specifically submarine cables. So they should maybe have a proper detachment or a department uh, in their hierarchy, which is specifically uh, charged with protecting uh, submarine cables. Although I understand that landing stations are already protected by the Coast Guard, uh, pra- uh, Sagar Prahari Bal of the Indian Navy and uh, the Marine Police Force that was set up post-2611. So the idea is that there should be a higher focus on uh, patrolling and the thorough familiarity of these patrolmen who would be, for uh, better or worse, our first uh, line of defense against saboteurs. The biggest uh, recommendation that I would make is that the Indian Navy, since it's already uh, made the net security guarantor of uh, uh, all things maritime for India uh, and in the region it aspires to be that, so I think SOSUS, the uh, a comprehensive array of hydrophones and sooner boys, uh, an all-encompassing sound surveillance system, uh, akin to what the U.S. Navy used to have uh, in the Cold War, something like that for the Indian Ocean region, something like that for uh, India's own territorial waters in EEZ. Uh, although we have begun efforts with uh, at least four harbor defense systems at the moment, and they're quite cost-effective, but their uh, force multiplier effect, their surveillance multiplier effect, their uh, multiplier effect in terms of maritime domain awareness goes far beyond just the security of uh, submarine cables. It's something that the government of India, the Indian Navy, and we as a nation should prioritize quite a bit, I think. So in conclusion, I'd say my recommendations can only go so far a single researcher can only go so far. But these are the points that I'd uh, really appreciate if the uh, Indian government, the strategic community at large uh, also address so that our country can uh, remain connected to the rest of the world and prosper. Fantastic. Um, thank you so much, Aditya. Um, for all of our listeners, I highly recommend you take a look at Aditya's research. Um, it's got some very interesting numbers and facts about just how important uh, submarine cables are and the risks and threats um, that they potentially face and the consequences uh, of not uh, following some of the recommendations and ideas that he's proposing. Um, on that note, uh, thank you so much, Aditya, for joining us. Thank you so much, Anirudh, for having me. Uh, and thank you for listening to All Things Policy. 
If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at Takshashila Inst or our website takshashila.org.in.